Thank you, Chris, for leading us in that. Would you take your Bibles and open them with me to the book of Ephesians? We find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, as we uh, think about our study of the church. The church. Ephesians chapter 3 is where we are. And I want to read for us verses 14 through 21 so that we have it in our minds in the context of our, the flow of this together. The Apostle Paul says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness, to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I was thinking about this text, and as some of you might know, I, I once was a Finnish carpenter in my life of jobs over the years that I've had. And uh, from time to time, I, I enjoy dabbling with woodworking and doing some things. And as a, as a young boy, I learned a few construction tips from my father, even though he wasn't a carpenter, nor did he ever work in construction. But one needed truth that every woodworker needs to embrace is simply this. Measure twice, cut once. Measure twice, cut once. If you measure wrongly and go ahead and make cut, then you can be assured that you will need a new board so that you can measure again. Well, somewhere along the line in my life, that as a, as a carpenter and sometimes in my haste to do things, that principle was inevitably set aside because I quickly became known as two-board Terry on the construction site. And I needed to exercise the principle that I was taught as a young boy in a consistent way. And it's simply measuring accurately. Measuring accurately helps to guarantee that you will execute accurately. And I think that principle is true in the Christian life. Measuring rightly helps to ensure that we obey accurately and for the right reasons. The Lord Jesus tells us clearly as His followers in John 14 and verse 15, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. In other words, the outworking in our lives of obedience is the outworking of our love for Jesus. So the accuracy of our love for Jesus Christ guarantees the accuracy of our obedience to Christ. But the question I want to ask is, how do we measure God's love? Right? That's how we measure our love for Jesus Christ. How do we measure God's love? It's really a mind-stretching question when you think about it, and yet here... In Paul's letter here to the Ephesians, he answers that question so that we would live for God as the church of God on the earth. In fact, it is Paul's prayer that we as believers fully comprehend, as we were reading this text, that we fully comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ for us why? Because that will guarantee the expression of our love for Him through obedience to Him. 
As we understand Christ's love for us, it will move upon us in our life to exercise obedience to Him out of that love that we understand. In other words, understanding our love or the love of Christ for us is more than just a comfort. It's more than assurance. It is even more than that which fills our heart with great joy as Christians. Understanding the love of Christ for us is power for obedience to Christ in the Christian life. And we need that kind of power. Why? Because we are often as Christians saying to ourselves in our Christian lives, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't seems to be the default position within evangelicalism and the Christian world. And yet we are actually saying to God, when we say I can't, we're actually saying I won't. I won't. In other words, more than a lack of ability to obey, that's what I can't say is I don't have the ability to do what you're asking me to do. More than that, it's a lack of desire to obey. When we say I can't, we're actually saying I won't, which is really born out of a a lack of desire to obey. And part of the reason is because we don't understand the love of Christ for us, and therefore we don't love Him as we ought. We convince ourselves that that whatever the sin is that we are engaged in, that we are facing, or the sin that we are trying to overcome, we are convinced or convince ourselves that it's just too strong. That I just can't get over it. I just can't overcome it. We just can't do it. And we convince ourselves that the trial that we are in or the, the struggle that we are going through is so tough for us to live for Christ as He commands us to live in and through it. It's just too hard. The circumstance is too hard. It's too much. The mountain is too tall. The valley is too deep. And we tell ourselves that God must therefore then not love us if I have to go through that trial or that circumstance or work so hard. The reality is that what is happening is that we are actually doing We're actually doing that which we love the most. In other words, love drives us. And the outflow of our love shows shows in our lives who we love, what we love. And until we have a greater love for the things of God in our lives, then the acts and attitudes of the world and flesh are going to continue. We're not going to obey when we ought to obey. In other words, the love that motivates us is the love that drives us. Let me say that again. The love that motivates us is the love that drives us. And the Apostle Paul tells us here in verses 14 through 21 that What we love motivates and empowers our actions. And he emphasizes that in his prayer by making three requests on behalf of the Ephesian believers and really on behalf of all believers. This is what I want to just kind of walk through with us tonight. These three requests that Paul makes. One is a request that we would comprehend the Spirit's strength in us. That we would comprehend the Spirit's strength in us. Two, that we would understand the love of Christ for us. And three, that we would know the fullness of God through it. So that we would comprehend the Spirit's strength in us, that we would understand the love of Christ for us, and that we would know the fullness of God through it. Now I want to focus our attention here in these verses. Notice how Paul begins his prayer. He says in verses 14 and 15, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. 
Now you remember back in verse 1 of chapter 3, this is where this prayer began. Paul says in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And remember then, he took this large detour because he was so overwhelmed by the reality of what God has given him by way of privilege in the church. And he just, he just has to exude with that, knowing that, that he was even involved, that God would choose him to be a part of this whole thing called the church. And, and he wanted us to know that kind of reality and wanted us to revel in that kind of reality, partly because here in the Ephesian church, he was writing them from prison, and he didn't want it to distress them. He wanted them to know that, that even what he's going through in prison is for their sake. In other words, he does everything for the sake of you. He's using the stewardship of the gifts of God in his life for the sake of the church, for the sake of the people that God has called him to minister to. And we learn from that 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 ought to be our mindset as well, how we think about ourselves when it comes to the church, that we don't just get to choose and pick and choose any time that we are going to serve the Lord. The Lord is the one to be served all the time, and he's put us in the church that we might serve the church. We are here for the sake of the church, the body of Christ. But here in verse 14, Paul, Paul picks up now his prayer that he had begun in verse 1. And because of what I have been sharing, he says to them, because of what I have been sharing with you about the way of God and the, the what of God saving you in chapter 1. Remember, we have all of these special blessings by God because God has chosen to save us. Because of all that God has planned, because of all that God has accomplished before the foundation of the world for you, by means of His beloved Son, because of the reality that it was God who made you alive when you were dead in your sins, chapter 2 says. Because you couldn't have gotten there on your own, because it was all of God and none of you, because of what God has accomplished on your behalf by uniting you with Jesus Christ, so that now you, along with Paul, along with me, are part of the family of God. We, as the church, are the representation of Christ to the world and to those in the heavenly places about the manifold wisdom of God, Paul says in verse 10. Because of all of that, Paul says, for that reason, I'm praying for you. He says, notice I bow my knees before the Father. In other words, Paul is so humbled by what God has done that he kneels before God to pray. He's asking God that we would understand our salvation. He says, I bow my knees. I kneel to pray. He kneels to pray. That is not normal for a Jew. Jews prayed standing up. Even today in the Jewish community, they stand to pray. Remember years ago, my wife and I flying to Israel on a large aircraft, and as we were traveling on that plane, of course it was filled with other kinds of people who were Jews, and certain times during the flight, it was a long flight. It was 11 hours just from Los Angeles to London, and then another seven hours from London to Tel Aviv. And on that seven-hour flight from London to Tel Aviv, there's numerous Jews on the plane, and the men would get up from time to time and go to the area by an exit door and stand there in that area and, and be standing and praying and, and doing all of the little things that the Jews do even now at the Wailing Wall and near the temple, the western mount of the Temple Mount. They stand there and, and pray to God, hoping that God would hear them. And yet here is Paul, here is the Apostle Paul kneeling in prayer. Humbled and shocked that God would give him the privilege to be, to be a part of this creation called the church. Now, of course, we, we looked intently at that in verses 1 through 13. The church, the glorious family of God, this new creation of God of which he is part and of which God, he says, is the Father. I bow my knees before the Father. 
It tells us, beloved, that in spite of our undeserving, in spite of our personal differences, we are family. Look around this room. This is your family. We are family. We are the extended family that goes back to the beginning of creation and all the way up into the heavenlies, Paul says. This is from which every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. We have brothers and sisters in Christ from the past and into the future, and we will all be together in glory. So Paul says God is our Father. I don't think anything about the love of Christ and the love of God to us means anything unless it comes from that perspective, that God is our Father. He is our Father, and therefore we can approach God, not as strangers, but as His children. We don't cower before God. We are citizens of heaven, children of God's household, given to us through the love of God in Christ. I was reading John Owen, volume 6. He has 16 volumes of John Owen's books. They're written in like eight font. And so it would take you a year to get through them, at least. But in volume 6, pages 131 to 134, John Owen makes this, he makes this statement. He says, quote, Let him that would not enter temptation labor to know his own heart. His natural frame and temper, his lusts and corruptions, his natural sinful or spiritual weaknesses, but also store the heart with a sense of love for God in Christ, with his eternal design of his grace, with a taste of the blood of Christ and his love in the shedding of it. Get a relish of the privileges we have thereby our adoption, our justification, acceptance with God, and you will, in the ordinary course of walking with God, have great peace and security as to the disturbance of temptations, unquote. I'll tell you, you got to read the Puritans to, to really just taste the flavor of the joy of what it means to think about what you are by way of your flesh in comparison to who God is and what God has accomplished on your behalf. Because John Owens is simply saying this, first recognize your sin, recognize that it is your sin, that it is yours and yours alone, and then face Christ and find out how securing He is in spite of your sin. In other words, when we see and acknowledge our sin for what it is, most of all, the sin of not humbly facing the fact that we do not obey simply because we do not love Him like we ought. When we humbly acknowledge that and then see the love of Christ to vanquish our sin through His sacrifice, then then we are enabled to obey Him with confidence and assurance. So Paul prays for us. Now, I know because I've spent time in this text, I know that this is not a truth that we normally as Christians like to own up to. Even on the occasion when we disobey and face up to it, we often at times say things like this, well, I just messed up. Or we say, I'm just weak. Or I can't do it. And when we say those things, there is the assumption in those sayings that we love Jesus as we ought to. It's just that we messed up. But if our disobedience is an expression of what we truly love, then our words are just empty words. Sure, we're not saying that there is no love present in us, but we have to admit that when we disobey, 
we have to admit that when we sin, it is because we love the sin in that moment more than Christ. We have to admit that. And so we begin to say to ourselves, well, then I must love God more than I more if I am to obey. I, I have to love God more if, if I'm to obey God more. And Paul says, yes, but the only way that you will ever do that is to realize and understand how much God loves you. Right? First John says we love him because he first loved us. Just like what Paul says in Romans 7. Right? One of the favorite passages we run to, particularly when we're having some sinful struggle, I find this war going on in my members, Paul said. With my mind, I want to do what is right, and yet in my flesh, I disobey. Then he says, wretched man that I am. And he says this, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through what? Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, right? And then he says, chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, we have the struggle, we we fight the struggle, and yet in those times we must admit the struggle is our struggle. It is us, it is our sin. It is in those moments when we choose to sin rather than obey that we love the sin more than we love Christ, and yet we must look to Christ knowing that in God, through Jesus Christ, He is our Lord and we are secure. There is no condemnation for us. The way to consistent obedience is to know the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. And it is for that that Paul prays, because Paul is going to say in chapter 4, I entreat you to walk worthy, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He's going to say in chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God. Well, those are crushing realities if we do not understand the love of God. We do not understand what we have in Jesus Christ. Paul knows we'll never do what we ought to do. And so Paul begins to pray. And he prays his first request. I I pray that, that you would comprehend the Spirit's strength. Notice verse 16 in the first part of 17, that he would grant you, I bow my knees before the Father, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Verse 16 begins this first request. And this begins the purpose in His prayer for us. In other words, if we were to read the entire passage again, it, it literally is, is reading like this. I pray in order that you, the Ephesian believers and all who would come after them, you and I, by implication, I, I'm praying in order that you might be strengthened by the Spirit to comprehend the full love of Christ for you so that you are, full, are filled with God's fullness. That's what Paul wants. In fact, if you have an NIV version of the Bible, you can see those divisions because the NIV includes words, the words I pray several different times throughout that, those verses. And Paul wants us to know that the power to overcome sin is from above. The power of obedience is not born in us, it is born in God. So the first thing he prays for is for strength in the inner man. I pray that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, which is beyond all riches, there is nothing more glorious than God's glory, that according to that you'd be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner Man, if we are going to obey, we have to understand that the strength to obey comes from the riches of God's glory. In other words, we are inadequate by ourselves to obey. 
Paul says, I pray that according to the riches of His glory, that He, the Father, would give you the strength that you would be strengthened with power in your inner man. That is in the real you. Not in your feelings, not in that you would feel better about doing it. No, in your heart, what drives you? That your driving nature would be on that very reality, your mind. I want God to strengthen your faith, he's saying. I want God to strengthen you on the inner man so that you will walk by that faith because that's exactly what He's going to ask us to do in chapter 4. In other words, it is worthless for us to think that we can follow after God by our own strength. Worthless. It's a, it's a foolish endeavor. We have to understand that God has the resources to supply us with what we need. You can't do it on your own. It would... It wouldn't do us any good to ask God for things He had no resources for. And so Paul says, I'm asking God because I know He has the resources. He has the riches of His glory. That's the resources. God, He is God and and He has all the resources. And so when we come to Him with confidence, we know that He will give to us children what we need. We cannot say, I can't do it can't say that. To say that is to, d- to doubt the reality of the riches of God's glory to strengthen us for it. And the ancient by which he supplies his strength is the Holy Spirit, he says. I want you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit. Through his Spirit. In other words, you can't come up with it on your own. You can't obey God without having the Spirit. Therefore, you can't have obedience to God if you don't know Jesus Christ because you can't have the Spirit unless Jesus Christ is in an intimate relationship with you by faith in Him. Therefore, all the false religions who believe they're obeying God are not obeying God at all because you cannot obey God without Jesus Christ. In fact, listen to what Paul said to the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. He said, so we do not lose heart. Why? Even though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. How is it being renewed? By the power of the Spirit. We are, we are being renewed to trust. It doesn't matter what happens to the outer man. We are trusting the Lord from the inner man, and therefore we continue. And so as we walk by faith, the Holy Spirit strengthens our faith so that Christ is the one camping out, as he says here in verse 17, so that with the purpose that I I want God to strengthen you through the power of the Spirit in your inner man so that Christ, your understanding of Christ, the love of Christ, he's dwelling, he's camping out in your heart through faith. I want Him to be so solidly founded in your heart that you would never be moved from it. That's what dwell means. Christ, by means of faith in Him, that He rules our hearts. Paul said to the Colossians, let the Word of Christ richly dwell in you. So think through it with me. Think through it. If we were dead in our transgressions and sins as unbelievers, and if God has made us alive with Christ, then we are what? We are identified with Christ. So that according to the accounting of heaven, Christ's life is accounted in our place. So the reason that the riches of God and the power of the Spirit are ours is because we are actually united with Christ. His life is our life. And so our unity with Christ is once again on the mind of the Apostle Paul. This has been on his mind since the very beginning. Our union with Jesus Christ, which brings our union together as people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. It here is bringing the Jew and Gentile together as one body. Why? Because of Christ. And so what Paul is saying is that to know the love of God 
is to be empowered for obedience. To know the love of God. We'll say it another way. To know Jesus Christ, which is the expression of the love of God, is to be empowered to obey. Knowing that we are free in Christ, therefore, doesn't open the door to greater sinfulness, as some people will say, well, listen, if I know I'm free in Christ and I, and I won't face any judgment because Christ has paid for all the sin, doesn't that open the door for just license? I just go do whatever I want to do sinfully because it really doesn't matter. It's already been paid for anyway. No, being free in Christ doesn't open the door to greater sinfulness. Being free in Christ actually opens the door to greater obedience. Why? Because of love. Love wouldn't disobey. And so Paul first prays that we'd be strengthened by the Spirit. And then secondly, he prays that we would understand the love of Christ for us. Notice what he says beginning in the end of verse 17. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. I love this. Paul says, having been rooted and grounded in love, that would never pass an English exam. It's a mixed metaphor. It's a mixed metaphor. One from agriculture and one from architecture. And Paul is putting them both together. Roots go down deep. We know that. In the plant world, roots go down deep. Foundations are that upon which buildings and homes sit and are built upon. And so like plants, like trees, our lives are to be rooted in the love for Christ and the love of Christ. And like buildings, our lives are to rest upon the foundation of and for Christ. This is what Paul says, you being rooted and grounded in love. Love for Christ, love of Christ. Foundation of Christ and the foundation for Christ. In other words, if we are properly rooted and grounded on the love of Christ for us and the love for Christ in us, then nothing will shake us. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, Paul says, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The same thing. Paul says, I pray that you being rooted and grounded in love, might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ. To intimately have that experiential understanding of the love of Christ. In other words, our love for Christ is born from our comprehension of the love of Christ for us. I have said this my entire ministry life because I believe this is what the Bible teaches in each and every difficulty we have in life. There is something going on in our understanding, either attributed to our understanding of who God is, who Jesus Christ is, or what salvation means. And normally it is a combination of all of those because you can't have an understanding of any of those in a wrong way and not have it affect the other ones. Our love for Christ is born from our comprehension of the love of Christ for us. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Therefore, the keeping of His commandments is the outworking of the heart that is comprehending the love of Christ for it. That's what it is. Christ's love is infinite love. That's what Paul is saying here. It's infinite love. Paul says, 
I want you to understand, comprehend with all the holy ones what is the the infinite reality of Christ's love. What is the breadth and the length, the height and the depth? That is simply to say that the love of Jesus Christ is wide enough to embrace all whom God has chosen to save. It cannot be exhausted in the sense that one whom God chooses to save will be left out because the breadth of God is wide enough to save them all. But he goes on to say it's long enough to last throughout all eternity. I want you to understand its breadth and its length. In other words, it will never be shortened. It will never end short. It goes throughout all of eternity because it is God's love. And it is high enough, he says, that it will enter the gates of heaven with sinners like you and me. I want you to understand its breadth. I want you to understand its length. I want you to understand its height, that it goes to the heights of heaven to bring sinners like us into the glories of God. And it is deep enough to pull us from the depths of sin's darkest day. A.W. Tozer put it this way, quote, Because God is self-existent, His love had no beginning. Because He is eternal, His love can have no end. Because He is infinite, it has no limit. Because He is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. And because He is immense, His love is the incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. Unquote. This is the love of God. When, we, when, was the, when was the last time you contemplated the love of Christ for you? You know, sometimes we use the little cliche, right? God's love is wide enough that He spread His arms on the cross and died for us. And while that is nice and picturesque, I wonder if we contemplate the reality of God's love because Paul says it is a love which surpasses knowledge. Surpasses knowledge. You see, our tendency is to measure the love of Christ by what we experience, by what we're going through, by what's happening to us in any given day, how we feel. We, we measure God's love by our measurements, by the measurement of our life and, and what's happening in our life. If we're blessed, we say, God must love me. God must really be caring for me because He's blessing me. But if difficulties come, what do we say? God must not love me. He must not care deeply for me. That's not what God says. God says, my love is great. Christ's love for us surpasses knowledge. It surpasses knowledge. Beloved, it's that truth that we must cling to by faith in all times of life. All times. Only, only those who do not know the love of God in Christ measure life by experiences. But not Christians. That's not how we are to think. We measure the love of God in Christ by the character of God, who is the one whose love is wider and longer and higher and deeper than anything we could comprehend. So Paul says we have to grasp how powerful and expansive the love of Christ is. He says, I'm praying to the Father that you would comprehend that. I'm praying to the Father that you would be strengthened in your inner man with that understanding. And then he makes this third request. You notice here in verse 19 that we would know the fullness of God through it. He says that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. 
This is the results. What are, what are the results of comprehending a greater measure of the surpassing love of Christ for us? What is it? Greater obedience to Christ. That's the answer. Notice Paul says that you may be filled up, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. The fullness of God is His sovereign power operating as it is directed by His divine character. When we comprehend the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, we are filled up with the power of God that transforms our life for His sake. In fact, notice, if your Bible is set up the same way I am, mine is chapter 4, verse 13. Notice Paul's going to say the same thing, just in a different way. He's, he's exhorting us in, in chapter 4 how we ought to live, and he's telling us how important it is for the church, how important it is for us to be engaged with this new creation of God called the church. And he says he has ascended, verse 9, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth, and he who descended is himself, he also who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. For what reason? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You see, God wants us to to know the love of Christ, to know His love through Christ, to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit and our inner man as we walk by faith in what He has told us, so that we would be transformed into the likeness of His Son, and in that transformation and in walking by faith, we would know the fullness of Christ. You say, how does that happen? Paul says, by being equipped through the Word of God. By being equipped through the Word of God. That's why he has done what he has done for the church. We know God and we know the riches of His glory. We know the extent of the love of Christ from His Word. And we have to continue in it until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to the fullness of Christ. So therefore, we must all be working. We must all be doing what we ought to do. Because when that happens, he says in verse 14 of chapter 4, as a result of that, we are no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. You see, the church is a protection. The church is a refuge. The church is a place that helps you realize what isn't right. How? Because we speak the truth in love. We're growing up into all aspects into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies According to the proper working of each individual part, what's it do? It causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You see, we have to continue it until we all attain to that. We can't just arbitrarily step out. God has equipped us to be in. So now we understand how our desires are connected to the power of God. See, we do what we want to do because what we desire is the very things that we are pursuing. That is simply to say that the love for Christ drives out a love for the things of the world. You have a love for Christ, pursue the things of Christ, you won't love the things of the world. And our love for Christ must first come from an understanding of His love for us.
What we love most, we will do. Notice how Paul ends this. Notice what he says in verse 20 and 21. Now, to him, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. I love how it's translated in the English language because it's not as many words in the in the original language, but here they're they're looking for superlatives and try to explain the exact exact thing that's being said. And so they continue to add these words that have to do with spatial realities that go beyond anything that we could know. We know to him who is able, he has the ability, he has the that's the word dunamis. Some would think that's dynamite power, but it's not. It's just the ability, the divine ability. Here is God. God's the one who's able to what? To do exceedingly, well, that's pretty far. Abundantly, that's that's far. That's one word in the English in the original language. He's to do exceedingly abundantly beyond. Well, I thought exceedingly abundantly was pretty far. Yeah, well, he's going beyond that. Beyond what? Beyond all. Okay, so that doesn't leave anything out. Notice all that we ask or think. So he's beyond your highest thoughts, your highest dreams, your highest wants. He's beyond all of that. He's he's better than anything you can think of. He exceeds all of that in an abundant way, and he does it according to the power notice that works within us. Not power outside of us. It's power he's put within us. What's that power? The Holy Spirit. Strengthened by faith. Right, listen, we, we can overcome all kinds of things when we simply just walk by faith. When we simply just trust the Lord, do what He said. You said, really, Pastor? Well, that's pretty, pretty tough to do that. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's a, that's a difficult thing. That's a difficult task. You better believe it's a difficult task. But it's not overwhelmingly difficult because we have faith, Right? You say, well, I just don't know if my faith will work. Well, here's the faith of some who have gone before us. Right? Time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and Samuel and of the prophets who, by faith, what? Conquered kingdoms, performed righteous things, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, Escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness they were made strong. They became mighty in war. Put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. There were people of the of this day that the world was not worthy to even talk about. They were wandering in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the grounds. And all of them walked by faith even though they hadn't received the promise. Why? Because they were standing on the exceeding abundantly beyond all they could ever ask or think, faith that God had given them that works within them. They weren't saying, I can't do it. Certainly they were saying, Lord, this is difficult. This is hard. We see that all through the Psalms. The psalmist laments, and yet the psalmist comes back to God and says, but in you I will trust. Over and over and over again. But in you I will trust. But in you I will trust. Listen, beloved, divine enablement. That's what we're talking about. This is divine enablement. Paul says, to him be the glory in the church. To him be the glory and in Christ Jesus to all generations. To him be the glory. Who, who's the representation of Jesus Christ now? Us. We're the body of Christ. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. That's divine enablement. We cannot say can't. We can't do it. 
When we understand how secure and how powerful the love of God is for us, then the response of our lives is to join with Him and walk by faith in what He commands us. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to do in the next three chapters. He's going to command us just how we are to live. Here's what that faith that you understand that God has given you does. Here's how it looks. Here's how it lives. Aren't you excited to get to that? I am. I am. I am. Well, let's pray together. Father, what a joy. What a joy it is to know such richness that which you've loved us. What we have in Jesus Christ and how you have equipped us, how you have saved us, dragged us out of the slave market of sin, transferred us into the kingdom of your dear Son, and given us the Spirit. Oh, Lord, strengthen us in the inner man that we would walk by faith. Help us to comprehend the love of Jesus Christ for us by faith. And through that, that we might know the fullness of you. Lord, help us live as those who have gone before us, that no matter what takes place in us, we're going to walk by faith, even when it doesn't make sense and even when it looks dangerous. Even when the world is mocking us and laughing at us and ridiculing us, it really doesn't matter, Lord. We just want to follow you. Lord, give us strength. Help us to exercise the strength that we have that is in us, as your word tells us here. Help us exercise that in those moments. And Lord, when we, when we choose willfully to disregard that, may we quickly, quickly run to you. Run to you out of a heart filled with repentance and asking for forgiveness on behalf of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has paid the price for every sin that would ever be committed. And may that in our lives drive us to greater obedience to you, to a stronger faith. Strengthen us in that for each moment so that you would be glorified in us. Lord, help us to not look pridefully at others and think, oh, gee, I wish they were doing what I'm doing. Help us not do that, Lord. Help us to always have our eyes fixed on Christ. And He be the one that we are following and comparing ourselves to, knowing that one day we'll be like Christ. But here and now, it's, it's a war. War against the flesh. And you have won the, the ultimate battle. And you have called us now to die to self. Help us to do that faithfully. To your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen.